Chapter 7 of The Gray Man This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Vina The Gray Man by S. R. Crockett Chapter 7 My Lady's Favors It was as I had foretold. Those that had flirted me for a beardless boy now scorned me no more. I mean chiefly Nell Kennedy. Indeed, for some days it was as much as I would do even to speak to her. She would make shift oftentimes to pass me in the pleasances of the house of Colleen, when I walked abroad in the sunshine with my hand on my sword, as was my duty to receive her father's guests. For there was a great repair of people to our castle ever since the outlawing, the cause of which was considered most fortunate and honourable to all concerned. Nell Kennedy, as I say, would often pass me in the orchard or in the Italian garden, which her father had made with great expense, and as she went by, she would kick with her foot a stone in front of me, but of this I took no heed whatever, no more than if I had not seen it, because for my own part I was resolved never to think of maids and such light matters again, but rather to concern myself solely with glory as became one who at eighteen had been outlawed for rebellion and other deeds of military prowess. Once it happened that we were all in the garden, Marjorie, the loons, James, and Alexander Kennedy, and little David, Sir Thomas's youngest son. Also, Nell Kennedy was there. Sir Thomas himself was walking to and fro at the garden's end, all by his lone, with his hands clasped behind his back, as was his custom. Then Nell, who, being angry, desired above all else to put a slight upon me, called me to come to her, speaking roughly, as though I had been a servitor, and bade me take a misbehaving puppy-dog of hers within doors. But I was equal with her, and beckoned to me Sandy, her brother, who played about on the grass plots. Who may this little girl be that hath the messin' dog with her? I asked of him. Thou art a great blind colt-head not to know my sister Nell, he answered, and ran again to his play with his brothers. Oh, said I, looking over the heads of those that stood near by, now I do remember to have seen the little maid playing with her dolls before I went to the wars. And with that I marched off, and walked to and fro on the terrace, near to my master. Presently he came and walked with me, 
as I had hoped he would, in sight of Nell and of them all, speaking low and kindly the while. And I listened, as though it were an affair of state and policy he had been confiding to my private ear, though indeed it was only concerning our greatly increased expanses with the vast number of guests who came to see him, and his fear that the buttery might be running low. When Nell Kennedy had betaken herself away in an access of anger and despite, I made my bow to Sir Thomas, her father, and went to the Italian plaisance once again. Presently the young Lady Marjorie came walking by, fairer of face than the flower of the hawthorn hedge on a moonlight night, but with hair tossed about her temples blacker than the sky on a night of stars. Her eyes were bright and large when she turned them on me. Lancelot, come and walk with me a while, she said kindly, unless you have something better to do with your arms and war gear as it may be, she added. And her way of speaking thus of my calling as a soldier pleased me. Also, in spite of my renunciation of all pleasure in women's society, my heart gave a great stound at her marked favour. Perhaps also at the way she had in walking, which was with her head high and her bosom set well forward in its open-work bodice of fair linen, and all her sweet body swaying lightly to the side as a willow wand that bends in the wind. Her voice, the voice of Marjorie Kennedy, sounded like the running of deep water in a lynn under the dusk of trees, with undercurrents of sobs and pitifulness in it, for all that it was so proud. For even thus, in her youth, walking as the fairest maid the sun shone on, Marjorie seemed ever to be fay, trysted to some lot beyond that of maids who are to be good men's wives and mothers. But enough of speaking about her and about. Better that I should tell what she said to me as we walked up and down, while the young buds were cracking open that gracious May gloaming. It was a good fight, I hear, and well fought, she said. Which fight may it please you to speak of, my lady Marjorie, said I, making as though I had been in many. The battle in the high street of Edinburgh, she made answer, and methought smiled as she said it, but there was no bairnly scorn or raw coltish ignorance in Marjorie's smile, as there mostly was in the face of her sister, who was nothing but a child at any rate, and still wore her hair without a snood, lying daft-like about her shoulders. Then I told Marjorie Kennedy of all the fight, and she listened with face turned away from me to the sea, looking to the hills of Arran that were so blue in the distance, so that for a space I thought she hearkened not to what I said. 
but in a little she interrupted me. And you speak thus with admiration of Gilbert Kennedy of Burgundy, he that is an enemy to our house and name. How say ye then that such a one is noble and worthy? For I had been telling her of meeting him coming from the king's palace. Ay, noble and generous is Gilbert Kennedy of Burgundy, as well as the handsomest man that walks, with a spring to his feet as one that goes upon the deep twigs of the pine trees in the woods. He can twirl a lance in one hand on horseback, for I myself have seen him. Never was there such a man. For I had given him all my heart and admiration, being then young, or at least not very old in years, and I wished with all my strength that such a one had been chief of our side and Earl of Cassilis, instead of he that was. Though my lord is a good man also, and I deny it not. Then it was that my lady Marjorie showed me the greatest favour that ever she showed to any man, and caused my heart to beat high with love and hope. For she took my hand in hers, holding it to her side as she walked, I and stroked and touched it gently with her other hand as we went along, being hidden by the screen of the leaves in the plaisance hedges. Now this was so sweet to me and precious that I slept with my right hand in a glove of silk for many days, ay, and even forbore to wash it, for I bethought me that, though as a man of war, I had forsworn the society of silly girls, yet every true knight had a lady for his heart's mistress, whose colours he might wear in his helmet, and whose lightest word he might treasure in his heart. Thus we two walked and talked, while the sun was going down, and the colours of a dove's breast crept over the water from the west. And this Gilbert of Burgundy, tell me of him, for, being the great enemy of our house, I desire to hear more of him, she said. So I told her, being nothing loath to speak of so brave an enemy. Was he at all hurt in the combat, think you? she asked again, carelessly, as one that thinks of other things. Wounded? No, I replied with a laugh. On the contrary, he pursued us down to the ford of the Norlock, and defied us all to come back and have it out. But I think that not he, but another, had a hand in the craven's trick of letting loose on us the off-scourings of the prisons, highland catherines and border hedge-thieves. And who might that other be, she asked, that, I replied, with dignity, I am not at liberty to tell. It is yet a secret under trust. Tell it me, she said, bending her eyes on me, that were beautiful as I know not what. And this, indeed, I should very gladly have done at that moment, but truly I knew nothing of the matter. So I made haste to answer that I would readily die for her, but that it was a soldier's duty, that he should keep the secrets 
with which his honour had been entrusted. Then tell me what you can, she said, so quietly that I was ashamed of my subterfuge, though that is the way that all wise men must talk to women, so as to keep the peace, telling them mostly the truth, but seldom the whole truth. It was, said I, the grey man. Ah, she replied, quickly drawing away her hand and laying it upon her heart, the grey man. What can ye of the grey man? I asked her in surprise. Nothing, she said, giving me back her hand. I know not why, but for the moment something came upon me, and I felt as it had been a little faint. It is nothing. It has already passed. Then I wished to bring her a cup of wine from the house, but she laughed more merrily than ever I had heard her, and tossed back the lace kerchief which confined her hair, so that it lay about her white neck with the ends dropping over her bosom. Let us two walk here yet a space, Launcelot, she said, for it is lonely within the great house. A saying which made my heart swell with gladness and pride, for she had never thus distinguished any man before, so that I forgot all about my vows, and about forswearing to company with women. But this was indeed very different. My lady Marjorie, I said, I much desired to say, my sweet lady, as they do in the stage plays, but dared not. My lady Marjorie, I said, I, even I, will be your true knight, and fight for you against all if so be that coming home I may see the pleasure in your eyes. Ah, will you truly, she asked, and sighed. Then she was silent for a moment, but drew not away her hand, which I took of be a good omen. No, you must not, you must not, it would not be fair, she said. I love you with all my heart, I whispered, trying to reach her hand. But somehow, though it was very near, I could not again take it in mine. She seemed not to hear me speak. Well, she said at last, as if to herself, perhaps it will be good for the lad. I could not conceive what she meant. Lancelot, she continued, and her voice had music in it, such as I never heard in any kirk or choir at matins or at loud. Lancelot, do not think of me, I pray you, at least not if you can help it. Help it I cannot, answered I, it is far beyond that. And so I thought at the time. But Lancelot, my sweet squire, she said again, hast thou already forgotten thy vow? It is better for thee to be a squire of arms than a squire of dames. At least, she added, smiling, till you win your spurs. I will win them for your sake, and you will let me, Marjorie, I cried. Win them then, Launcelot, she made me answer, suddenly breaking from her reserve. Win them for my sake, 
and see, meantime, you shall wear my colours. And she undid a brooch of gold, whereon were the lilies of France, that were the badge of her house, and setting it on the velvet collar of my coat, she gave a little dainty pat to the place where she put it. It sets you well, she said, pushing my hair to one side to look at me. Two such I have. Wear you one, and I shall wear the other, for Marjorie Kennedy and the honour of Colleen. It sounded like a sacred oath rather than the posy of a love gift. For Marjorie Kennedy and the honour of Colleen. Then, most humbly, would I have lifted her fingers to my lips and kissed them, not daring more. But she put her hand on my head, for she was tall, though not as tall as I, and bent sweetly to me. The blood of all my heart fled, insurgent to my ears, deafening me, as I also stooped toward her. No, not there, she whispered and kissed me gently on the brow. My laddie, she said, be brave, true, noble, and one day you shall know root and branch what the love of woman is. And waving me not to follow her, she went in with her head turned away from my sight. So there for a great space I stood in the dusk of the arbor, mazed and bewildered by the strange, undreamed-of bliss, ennobled by the touch of her lips, I, more than if the king himself had laid his sword on my shoulder in the way of accolade. Then at last I moved, and went in also, dragging tardy-foot away from the sweet and memorable place. At the garden-gate, I met Nell Kennedy, and made the pass without seeing her, but she stood in the middle of the way. I know, she said, pointing scornfully with her finger, Maidy has been talking to you behind the hedge. She has given you the French brooch she would not give me yesterday, though she has another. Then I walked silently past her, with as great dignity as I could command for that is ever the best way with forward children. But she turned and cried after me, I know who will get that other, a saying which did not trouble me, though I could not quite forget it, for I knew well enough that it was only Nell's spite, because her sister had not given her the golden badge which she coveted. High in my room, in the white tower, I sat and looked out to the sea. There I sat all night, sleepless, till the sun rose over the woods and the chilly tops of the waves glittered. I bethought me on all that had happened, and I remembered with shame many things in which I had done not wisely, especially in the matter of the grieve's lass and my convoying of her home through the wood. For now, with Marjorie Kennedy's badge against my lips, all things had become new, 
bitterly was I ashamed of my folly, and right briskly did I repent of it. End of chapter 7